The South Dakota Stories, Volume 7. My trip to South Dakota was the best summer ever. Now I don't need to go to Mars because I've been to the Badlands. And I caught a bigger walleye than Dad when we went to the Missouri River. Then I rode my bike through these huge rocks called needles. Ooh, I also saw my first herd of bison, even a fuzzy furry baby one. I can't wait to go back and see more. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. You ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or a random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that, just like the other members of NSYNC, he was not invited to the halftime performance either. He is the captain. He Joey Fatone me. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today we are drinking War Elephant by the fine, fine people over at Rushing Duck Brewing Company. Garage grade, three and three quarter bottle caps out of five. I got to try this for the first time this weekend and it made my weekend great. War Elephant is a double IPA and as one might expect from the powerful name, it is a powerful beer with big flavor and a high ABV of 8.7%. So enjoy responsibly, my friends. And this powerful brew was brought to us by this powerful garage crew. First up, a big shout out to Maddie and Misty, a couple of co-workers listening from Watertown, South Dakota. Big shout out to Kayla from Brooklyn, Ohio. And I want to give a big thank you and a cheers mates to Steve and Alyssa in Pinckney, Michigan. And a big we like your jib to Elizabeth in Superior, Colorado. And sending a long distance cheers to Linda all the way in King Lake, Australia, And last but not least, a garage grouping here. We have Alina, Michael, and also their friend Mary Davis at Bennington College. Cheers, mates, and thanks for everybody for filling up the fridge this week. If you want to help us out with next week's beer run, go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the donate button. I've been to that college. Got wasted. We would also like to give one more shout out. This is to someone that some of you are aware has contributed and helped this show behind the scenes Mm -hmm. it's the garage's dear friend the skipper we would like to congratulate him he has been named the district vice president for ohio police and firefighter retirees so congratulations to the skipper our resident in the garage detective can you give one more shout out go for it a big shout out a big we like your jib to brennan cuff for sending me the fuzz face the 70s fuzz pedal Check out renandcuff.com today. They make amazing guitar and bass effects pedals. And follow True Crime Garage on Instagram and Untapped. And if you want case updates and if you want to put in your thoughts and your opinions, check out our blog at truecrimegarage.com. Captain, that is enough of the business. Everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime.
Monday, August 7th, 1972. 16-year-old Jeanette De Palma told her mother she was going to go to her friend's house to spend the afternoon. The friend lived about eight miles away, and Jeanette did not yet have her driver's license. Her mother offered to drive her, but it was nice that day. Jeanette insisted on walking. She left her home just shortly after 1 p.m. that day. The plan? A three-mile solo hike to the train station, and then the train would drop her nearby her friend's home. While Jeanette was seen walking that day, she never arrived at her friend's house, nor did she call. It's believed that she never even made it to the train station. She simply disappeared. On September 19th, after Jeanette had been missing for six weeks and one day, the discovery of a rotting human forearm led police and investigators to her body. Discovered in the woods, badly decayed, and resting on a cliff known as the Devil's Teeth. The coroner could find no signs of bullet or stab wounds. After examining the body, he could provide the police and the De Palma family with no cause of death for Jeanette. And the police could offer no explanation as to why her body would be found in that location. Investigators suspected drugs or strangulation. Her death was being treated as a homicide, mainly because of where the body had been found. When the community needed answers, the rumor mill began to generate stories about Satanism and witchcraft. This only fueled more gossip. How did this innocent teenage girl die? And if it was in fact murder, who had killed her? And who knew about this? Was she killed by a stranger that saw her walking that day? Or was it a friend or maybe a boy she knew? Or was it the mafia or some kind of police cover-up? This is the continued story of the bizarre death of 16-year-old Jeanette De Palma. As everyone may remember from last week, after they found Jeanette's body, the police were quick to identify her. However, they could not offer anything conclusive as to how she had died or what the cause of death was. It's pretty obvious that the investigators suspected drugs early on. Statements from the investigators state that when they located the body, remember her pocketbook was found nearby. Obviously, you check the pockets of her pants and the pocketbook looking for identification, maybe a driver's license, school ID, or even a library card to tell you who this body may belong to. But the investigators were also checking and looking for drugs on her person or in that pocketbook, or even evidence of possible drug use. They suspected either a suicide or possible accidental overdose from drugs. They found no drugs and no evidence of drug use either. They also didn't locate any forms of identification on her. Putting a name to the body came later by the way of her dentist comparing x-rays and her dental history. More importantly, they would test the body for drugs. These tests provided no answers, only more questions, as there were no trace of drugs found in the body they did, however, find a high level of lead came back in these tests. So possible lead poisoning, but I, I don't think that would explain why her body was found in the woods on top of a cliff. Also, the amount of lead detected from these tests shows a level that while it is quite high, it is not a level that is high enough to where you would commonly see death occur. So what does this all mean? Well, it certainly clears up one or two of the what seems to be very likely possibilities when you look at this case from afar. That being, she didn't use drugs to kill herself. Right. And she didn't overdose on anything. Yeah, at some party. Correct. So that might put to an end the possibility of her showing up at, that Bla at the Blattis house 
dying from something, you know, drinking too much or doing drugs and something happening to her. So it couldn't have been an overdose. Now, while we cannot fully determine if she was or not at the Bladis home that day, this kind of clears that up, in my opinion. Well, it wouldn't be uncommon to find a body that's been on a ground that is a dumping ground for construction to have traces of lead because if they're dumping construction items, they're dumping paint, which would have lead in it in 1972. Yeah, and you bring up a very good point because we have to keep in mind that her body had been resting there for weeks before she was found. And remember, we said that her body had sunk into the ground to the point that later a girl that knew her and had visited the site just days after they removed Jeanette's body from the devil's teeth. Right. She's there. She's saying that she could see, she could still see the outline or the impression that the body had made in the ground. And Jeanette's body was badly decayed so bad to the point that some have said portions of her body in the clothing had become one. Could portions of the body and the ground have done the same or did elements hiding in or making up the ground below her seep into the body through osmosis or, you know, leaving high traces of lead later found in the body through osmosis. Here's the thing though, that, that I don't think that they did captain and, and you're, you're exactly right. I, I wonder, did they take soil samples of the area? It doesn't appear that they did. We can't find any record of that. Right. Um, but it's a, it's a dumping ground for construction. And, and if you ask the people that are dumping stuff, what did you dump? And they said, well, we use this paint, which has lead in it, and we dumped it into the soil. And then this body is found inches within the soil. What is what is it going to absorb? Mm-hmm. That paint. And what is that paint going to have in it? Lead. So it's pretty easy, I think, to explain. Yeah, yeah. I think they could have gone the extra mile and actually went back to the scene and maybe taken a soil sample. Yeah. Couldn't have hurt the investigation uh, in any direction at all. But... Let's let's move on because I think those are all reasonable explanations why these high traces of lead were found in her body. I want to move on to a possible suspect here, Captain. And this takes place a, about a month or so after Jeanette's body was found. Now, please keep in mind, by this time, two things had already occurred in this case. Yeah, the rumor mill was turning out witchcraft stories. And well, and the second thing, Captain, is that the stories coming out in the newspaper were starting to taper off. So less information either coming out or being presented, however you choose to look at it. This is when a young dude, this is 21-year-old Terry Raquel. He goes to the police department and he tells them there is something they should know about where Jeanette's body was found. He tells them that where she was found is right by where someone lives. Terry told the detective about a homeless man that made part of the woods that is fairly close to where the body was found. Well, this, this homeless man, he, he made it his home. You know, he was staying there. Technically he wasn't homeless. Right. Yeah. yeah, I guess that's a contradiction, right? Uh, this patch of woods is, is the home to this homeless man. What's this guy's name? You know what, Captain, you, you mentioned something that you said, well, he's not really homeless. That makes me think of an old, uh, George Carlin bit who, who I miss dearly mm-hmm. when he, he was good friends. Yeah. all oh, very good friends. Mm-hmm. We used to go picnicking in the park and, uh, he said that, uh, George Carlin said that there are no such thing as homeless people because home is a state of mind. What the, what they are is houseless. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, in good memory of my good picnicking friend George Carlin I will refer to this guy as houseless so this young man tells the police that some of the locals refer to this houseless man as red that he has a like a shanty or a lean to or something that he's he's fabricated in the woods out here and he says that the man is called red because of his long red hair and beard he's got a wild beard not uh, kind of a hippie yeah looking guy yeah there you go and this guy does work though he works um i don't know how much but according to the book that we've referenced a few times the death at the devil's teeth he works several days a week at a local golf course you know caddy jock looper (laughs) you know (laughs) 
<laughs> well, so yeah, so he's a caddy and he's working there for cash tips. You know, sometimes you can make pretty good money doing that if uh, the course is busy that day. Yeah, or if you're not caddying for the Dalai Lama himself. Mm-hmm. This guy, Red, seemed to be pretty resourceful as well. You know, we had said and mentioned that he had fashioned himself some type of dwelling there in the woods. Well, he would sleep and he would also cook meals out there. And I don't think anyone really reported anything on this guy other than that he lived in the woods and he caddied at the golf course in town. He's referenced in several different accounts of the investigation into Jeanette's murder. But it looks like other than the caddy thing, nothing else is really known of this guy. Now, the suspicion falls because of the proximity from his dwelling and where the body was found. To further the suspicion, it sounds like this guy read like he may have took off and left. Yeah. Which is a tricky thing because when I think of houseless people, uh, I typically jump to the thought and conclusion that they're nomadic you know, moves around based off of need or, or, you know, right. But I, but I guess, you know, each is their own. So maybe that doesn't work with everybody, but well, well, let's get into this point, right? Because this is a big point of speculation. Yeah. As we have this guy that's living in the woods, that's where she's found. A lot of people think that maybe she was traveling or something and that she went into these woods for whatever reason, and then he attacked her there. Like she has st- uh, stumbled upon him mm-hmm. at night, right? Yeah, there's a few different theories regarding that. But one thing I want to one thing I want to clear up right here before we get into this too much, Captain, is okay. So I have some experience with this, and and I'm sure lots of people out there do as w- do as well. But back when I was doing property management, there was plenty of times that I would have to chase off a guy from time to time that was clearly just squatting in a place that he found for a night or two. And there's a, there's a big difference here. This, everything that we hear from the police regarding this red guy, he seems to have been living there. It wasn't like he just found a place that he liked and he was going to stay for a few nights or a couple weeks. This seemed to be a, a setup that he had arranged and he was planning to stay there for quite some time. The rumor being is that he would show up in town, stay at this place that he had set up in the woods and he would stay there through the course of the golf season, right. and then he would kind of disappear during the colder months, and then he would pop up again, and he would stay in the same place. Yeah, and he did this for multiple years. So before we get into this, I just want to clear up that you know people are going to say, suggest, well, maybe he was just staying there for a couple nights. That's not the case here. The, the thing is, is how suspicious is it that this guy took off? Because you got to wonder, did he take off? There's several rumors that either A, he took off shortly after Jeanette was murdered. This would be in August of 72. B, he took off shortly after her body was found, which would be in September of 72. Now, you have the maybe another possibility that it was shortly after her body was found. But once this report was given to the police, this is in October of 72. They went out there in the woods looking for Red. Right. They found all of his stuff. They Well, we don't know if it's all of his stuff, but they found some of his things there. And they saw what they suggested was evidence that he might have left in a hurry, like that there was food that he had prepared and just kind of left it there, that he didn't come back and collect any of these items. It seems to me like he might... I don't know his setup. That's hard. That's hard to gauge here because... If he's the kind of guy that he's just going to leave these items behind and whatever happens to be left over when he gets back there the following year, he makes use of. Well, what makes the most sense is let's go to the golf course and let's say, hey, let's try to figure out when's the last time that red worked. The problem with this, though, was that the caddies are, quote unquote, subcontractors, so they don't have like a technical work schedule. But I think if you interview the members of the golf course you could get a better timeline because nobody really knows the schedule and it wouldn't be that crazy to think somebody living a nomadic life i mean he comes into town multiple times throughout multiple years and then he goes off to work somewhere else Mm -hmm. you don't know if he left a week before or two weeks before right so they need to they should have uh, you know, ask the members of the golf course to try to get a smaller timeline. 
Yeah, and what they did was they did go to the golf course. And like you said, he's a subcontractor or whatever you want to refer to it as. It, the golf course didn't know his real name either. They just referred to him as Red as well. He didn't he didn't work work for the golf course. The the way that I understand it to be is back then that these guys would just kind of show up randomly from time to time and they would sit there and wait for a golfer to come up and say, "Hey, I need a caddy." Yeah. And then they would carry their bag and follow along and get tipped at the end of the at the end of the round. So, he didn't, you know, he didn't in the sense work for the golf course. And I think you're right. That would have been an interesting avenue to take is to talk to the actual golfers because you know how this thing works, Captain. Some of these people when they I know nothing. When they when they show up when these re- golfers that are there time and time again, they may ask for him by name. Right, right. You know, somebody may know his schedule or at least the last time they saw him or he caddied for them. Well, and the, the other speculation here is that, you know, they find they find her body in the woods, right? Mm-hmm. And then this guy hits the hits the road. Maybe it was just that they found a body in the woods and that scared the, the crap out of him. Yeah. You know, if, if I'm living in the woods, right, mm-hmm. down by the river, um, and they find a body, you think I'm going to stay there? I have standards of where I live. When I'm living in the woods, I have standards, and I can't be living in woods that they found a body in. I love that because I think you and I share the same feeling on this, where you have the rumor that this guy left after having killed her, like left in August after having killed her. She's not found until September. You and I kind of lean towards the possibility that maybe he was living there till closer to the time that they had found her or maybe even afterwards. Well, right. But they did track this guy down. Yeah. Yeah, they did. And this is, this is what's weird. I don't know the particulars of how they tracked him down, but they did identify him and they did eventually speak with him. So supposedly this guy red must have checked out because either they have nothing on him, which could just be the case or either through questioning or some other technique, they let him go after having cleared him. Several online reports of this case will say that the guy was cleared personally. I question that. Yeah, but this the the rumor mill is that red came from money and that when they went to uh, look into this guy as a suspect, they ran into a situation where he came from a lot of money. Hmm. Filthy, stinking rich. And that is the reason why we have thoughts of there being a cover-up. That he was going to lawyer up and they decided they couldn't fight the good fight and defeat this guy in trial? Yeah, or the people that he, um, his family was so powerful mm-hmm. that they stopped the investigation anyways. And that's just a rumor. Right. And, but I would like to, I would really like to explore why they cleared the guy. Cause I've seen online reports stating that he was cleared. Not that, not that we just couldn't charge him with anything that, Oh, we checked into him and he checks out. Yeah. But again, this is a, a weird time in, in history, 72. So the late sixties, seventies, you have a lot of people uh, living in vans and traveling across the country and just, you know, taking some time off to discover themselves. Mm-hmm. And this guy could have came for money and said, you know, I'm just going to live off the land and I'm going to caddy during the day. And, and he could have went to visit some family or friends during this time where she went missing. Cause like there's a six week gap. Right. Right. No, so, and th- Well, that's what I'm getting at though with if, okay. So if he supplies you with an alibi, the trouble that you run into here is I'm guessing that if you cannot determine the cause of death, then determining the approximate time of death is way out of the question. Right. So unless in some type of interview, he can sit down and say, Hey, I was in Europe with Bill, Todd, Tammy, and Ethel backpacking through the hillside from August 3rd to the 30th. Right. You know, I I would question really any kind of alibi that you get from anybody on this. Uh, to me, the alibi would be kind of a non-factor here. Right. Like you said, I mean, the frustration with this case is, okay, this guy that seems like a plausible suspect, what is his alibi? Mm-hmm. My other thought would be is, you know, back then, this is this is 1972, and this, this would be a, just a total guess. I've never seen any evidence of this, but my thought would be, 
think about 1972. They put a lot of faith in the old lie detector test back then. A lot of faith in the polygraph test back then. And if they really liked this guy or if they really wanted to try to clear him or really hone in on him, they're going to try to get him to give a polygraph test, especially if he's cooperating during the the questioning portion. Right. And so maybe he took that test and passed it. Passed with flying colors. And they're like, all right, we're all done with you. Now, one thing that, uh, and you referenced this last week, I believe you referenced the West Memphis three last week when we were talking about this devil's teeth case. Mm -hmm. And it kind of made me remember something uh, regarding John Douglas uh, from the FBI's behavior science unit. Now, one thing that he said, and he said this in several profiles that he's given, not all of them. This is not something that, that runs across the board, but he gives this in several profiles and he even gives it when he gives the criminal profile of who he think may have perpetrated the West Memphis three case. Okay. And he states that in a lot of these cases that somebody, but will pass, this guy will pass the lie detector test. You could bring him in. You could hook him up to the polygraph. He still killed her, but he will pass the test. Right. I wonder, I wonder if they use that to clear him and hearing that from John Douglas makes you suspect I mean, it's a scary thought to think of how many people throughout the years they may have used the polygraph test to clear them. And then it turns out they they only pass the polygraph because not only are they a murderer, but they're truly, truly a psychopath. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids 
that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, cheers, Mimi Teeth. Cheers, Captain. I probably sound more annoying than normal because I'm a little under the weather. Under and over the weather at the same time. Well, I went um, on my boat, uh-huh. on my big giant boat, and um, we were attacked by pirates, and I've been sick ever since. <laughs> Bird flu. <laughs> so I want to bring up something here, Captain, because there's something strange going on, and we, we need to point out that Jeanette De Palma's murder and her case is not really the only one of the time that goes unsolved. We have to fast forward to 1974 where we have girls getting killed at what I've made in my notes here as an alarming rate in New Jersey in 1974. I want to bring up something, uh, and this is mainly taken from the New York Times, and we've summarized the article, but the, uh, the article's headline is Rights Held for Two Girls, Latest of Six Slain. And this is from uh, December 30th, 1974. They had a Catholic mass celebrating the lives of two teenage girls, two teenage girls that were murdered. Hundreds of people attended the wake. While this is going on, there were detectives from three different counties meeting, all New Jersey counties, meeting and comparing notes on unsolved killings of six teenage girls. Now, the church service was for Joanne DiLardo, 15 years old, and Doreen Carlucci, who was 14 years old. They were last seen walking together on December 13th. They first went to a recreation center. They left there and going to a nearby convenience store. And after leaving the store, they disappeared into the night. Roughly two weeks later, their bodies were discovered in a wooded area in Manalapan Township, New Jersey. An examination revealed that both had been badly beaten and they died as a result of strangulation. Both bodies were found partially nude, and one of the girls still had a length of electric cord wrapped around her neck. 
Father Strano oversaw the services for the girls, and he directed most of his sermon at the classmates of the dead girls, telling them, learn to live life as it is. Do not expect everything to be joyful, happy, or pleasurable. Don't look for constant climaxes, constant highs. Turn away from drugs, grass, and booze. So I think, Captain, we may have to do with them being murdered. Exactly. I think that you and I might have been right about something here. You know, what? why do we see the priest using the sermon at the service of the murdered girls as a teaching moment for the other kids? Because he's a moron? Mm-hmm. And I think regarding Jeanette De Palma, that is how some of these rumors about her behavior and about her character came about. If you start talking to kids at the services saying, stay away from drugs, grass, and booze, some of those kids start thinking, well, these two girls must have been doing some or all of those things, and that behavior may have led to their demise. Yeah, and isn't that some form of victim blaming? I think so. It's a 14-year-old girl. You're going to blame her. You know, she's some drug addict. It's ridiculous. And even though we can't put together a cause of death for Jeanette, there's good reason to suspect that she had nothing she was doing is what led to her, her death. Right. We, we can't, we can't find anything, any big red flags, anything standing out saying, Oh, this is, this is some bad stuff that she was doing or some bad people she was hanging out with. We can't find any of that. Yeah, it's most likely her trying to find a ride is what caused her death. So who are these other girls that that they are mentioning in this article, part of the six girls that were killed in 1974? Well, here's two more of them. In in separate incidents, uh, first one in January of 74, and then in February of 74, we have Suzanne Garden, who was just 14 years old, and Cynthia Leslie, 18 years of age. Both were out... Uh, walking after Susan was out walking after leaving her home. And then Cynthia, who was out running errands, both were found dead just days after they were last seen, both strangled, both partially clothed and the bodies left in wooded areas. Now, neither of these girls had been sexually assaulted. Uh, this happened over in Dover township. Now I want to take us to Friday, August 9th, 1974. And let's move to a place called North Bergen. This again in New Jersey. So now we are about 20 miles northeast of Springfield, where Jeanette was from. And just actually almost two years, almost two years exactly from the day that Jeanette went missing, we have Mary Ann Pryor along with her friend Lorraine Marie Kelly. Mary Ann Pryor is 17 years old and Lorraine Marie Kelly is, she's actually just days away from turning 17 years old. They were planning to go to the mall walking to the mall, according to Pryor's family. This was around four in the afternoon when they left, saying that they would be back a little after 5 p.m., but they, they don't return. Right. Mary Ann's mother calls the police in an attempt to report that her daughter is missing. Well, Captain, you can probably guess what happens here. Right. So her mother and, you know, they're, they're told she's not missing until it's been 24 hours. We can't take a report. Such bullshit. So her mother and older sister go out looking for her, and unfortunately, they find nothing. Once the mother is finally able to, or shall we say allowed to, report her daughter missing, the police insist that she is a runaway, and therefore she is labeled as such on the report that they take. Do your job. Yeah. They did do some looking for her. Uh, We have to be fair and state that. One person they spoke with, among others, was... Lorraine's boyfriend. This is uh, Ricky Molinaro. Now, Ricky fills the police in on some of the details of that evening. He says that he had picked the girls up and drove them for a portion of their trip. I'm guessing toward their destination, but dropping them off along the way. It sounds like the two teenage girls had a few stops to make on their walk before returning home. Right. Ricky tells the police that the plan was that he was going to pick them up at a predetermined location at approximately 9 p.m. that night. Ricky goes to the pickup point, and his girlfriend Lorraine and her friend Mary Ann, they never show up. Five days later, on August 14, 1974, and about 20 miles away, 
The two girls' bodies were found on a hill in Montvale, New Jersey. The two girls were naked and lying next to each other. Uh, And this is an account mainly taken from PIX11 in New York and checked with the New York Times. It's referred to as a hill, but it's more like this. There's, There's a parking lot. And then there's some woods near the parking lot. Mm -hmm. This is pretty much a small stretch of land between the parking lot and the woods. That's where the bodies were found. So what I picture is someone pulling up, pulling into the lot and a truck or a car pulling up and to a little land strip there and unloading these bodies and either carrying them or more likely dragging them one at a time from the vehicle and then laying or placing them between the lot and the woods. Mm-hmm. Just to give you a quick idea of what we are looking at, the PIX11 headline, one of the articles mentioned is says, torture, rape, and murder of two North Burgundines still a mystery. Now, the girls like Jeanette were found face down, mm-hmm. and other than just a couple pieces of jewelry, there was nothing on these girls. And both were in bad shape. We we see signs of taunting and torture here, bruising to the face and burn marks on them. Now, these these would be small burn marks, so possibly cigarette burns. Both had been strangled, and due to ligature marks on the wrist and ankles, some have suggested that they may have been hogtied. This is quite possible, but I want to throw this in there as a thought rather than hogtied. And I only mention this due to the time of death offered up later by the medical examiner. So keep in mind, the girls were missing for about five days. Well, the newspaper accounts says, says five days. They, they technically went missing in the evening, right? And they're not found until later. They're not found until a morning time. So it's more like five and a half days if you want to be okay. technical about it, right? Well, the medical examiner comes back with that they had been killed between 24 and maybe as long as 48 hours before they were found. I this, love, love these windows they give. Yeah, but they were, they were killed within an hour to four days. Well, it can it can get very difficult to determine. It's no, not I, it's I not like on TV where they they stick a little probe in somebody and they're like, mm-hmm. this person was killed at 3:15. Right. Um, but. It doesn't necessarily mean that they were laying there the entire time, but they were just dead for 24 to 48 hours before being placed there. So now we have we have a window, right? A rather big window of 60 to maybe over 80 hours of missing time. Time that the girls would have been alive but missing, probably held somewhere. So I offer up that maybe rather than hogtied, wrist to ankles, I suspect tied to something uh, maybe more likely the ligature marks tied before they were killed. Yeah. That they were held hostage somewhere. These two deaths are very different in the sense that we see signs of torture and both were assaulted sexually. Well, with Jeanette's death, I mean, we still don't have a cause of death and that's going to be the big problem. So are these connected? I mean, I think one, you have, uh, women of the same, roughly the same age. Mm-hmm. So that connects them. Mm-hmm. Also, they're, you know, uh, traveling by foot. Mm-hmm. So that connects them. You know, are these connected? I, I don't know if there's any way of us knowing because we don't have, you know, to me it would be, these would be in a line and that maybe Jeanette was one of the first victims. Yeah, you bring up something good there because you're right. We see if 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 she is in a series of murders uh, that we just discussed here, you would see an escalation going on because, yeah. and it's tough with Jeanette's case because she was badly decomposed. We don't know what evidence we would be missing because of the time that her body sat there. Right. But in these, in these two women's cases, we have, you know, the situation where they're, they're tortured, mm-hmm. they're, they're raped, they're beat. In Jeanette's case, it could be as simple as this was one of the first attacks he had on somebody mm-hmm. and he strangled her but he didn't strangle uh, enough to break her hyoid bone. Right. But I do want to point out that there is a medical examiner that is quoted in that article regarding these six murder victims that are separate from Jeanette's case. 
And this medical examiner, in his opinion, is quoted as saying that the, the killings are dissimilar. But the prosecutor and the investigators at the time, they wanted to wait to make a conclusion until they had the opportunity to sit down together and compare everything that they had. Now, they never come out at any point and say that these are absolutely connected. They're just stating to the media that we are sitting down and working on these together because we have an alarming situation. We have girls that are walking down the street. They're going missing, and then they're later turning up dead. Now, I want to bring up somebody that uh, most of us are probably not familiar with, and his name is Robert Zarinsky. Mm-hmm. Now, I'd be surprised if many of our New Jersey re- residents even know who this guy is. This guy is a real problem, okay? Uh, and look, as as you can see in the early 70s, a few counties in New Jersey had a real problem. Now, this guy, Zarinsky, he might not have been the single source of all of their problems, but I'll sum up what we know about him, and I'll let you be the judge. So Robert Zarinsky was born in 1940, and at the ripe age of 18, it's believed that he had killed for the first time. This is in 1958. They think that he killed a cop. And the story goes like this. There's uh, Officer Charles Bernarski. So this officer responds to a burglary that's in progress at the Miller Pontiac car dealership in Rahway, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. The officer, when he arrives and he startles these two guys, he's fired at uh, and he returns fire. Now, the officer was shot and killed at the scene. Fingerprints were left and lifted from the crime scene. Hang on to your horses, Captain, because this is strange. 41 years later, mm-hmm. they identified the fingerprints and matched them to a man by the name of Theodore Schiffner. Now, it turns out that Schiffer was at the Pontiac dealership that night way back in 1958. He was there with his cousin, Robert Zarinsky. Mm-hmm. And when the officer caught them there they shot at the officer. The officer managed to actually shoot both of these men that night. Good for him. And yet they find a way to get away. In 2001, Zarinsky's sister testified at court that her and her mother had removed bullets from both Robert Zarinsky and his cousin that night. The boys telling them that night that they had shot at a cop. Zarinsky was tried for this, like we said, in 2001, but it was not successful. He was acquitted of the charges. <laughs> How? Okay, so... We have uh, his fingerprints. Well, they have his cousin's fingerprints. His right, fingerprints okay, weren't right, actually right, right, found. Right. And they they tie him there because of what his sister states about removing the bullets from the two of them and the mm-hmm. two telling the story, hey, we shot at a cop tonight. Right, but shouldn't one piece of the evidence is, let's just see if he has a bullet wound. Let's just find mm-hmm. out if he's ever been shot before. Yeah, I don't know if they took the, that avenue. I, I would guess that they... Right, but then if you have been shot before and you claim that your sister didn't take it out of you, can we see the doctor's report mm-hmm. from which hospital you went to take this bullet out of you? You, know, it's, you should have been the prosecutor, and I'll tell you why. The reason why they picked apart that that case and they couldn't sentence this guy was because they discredited the sister. They, you know, they basically tore her apart and her life apart and stated, you know, you can't trust this woman's right. uh, story. She's a sleazy. She's a sleazy woman. She's easy. You can't believe a word she says, but you bring up some, some good things. So now this dude, Zarinsky, of course you can see, that he's going to be a career criminal, you know, and he did, you know, he had things like robbery, arson, a lot of that sort of thing in his background and on his record. Mm-hmm. But in 1965, it's believed that he started killing women and girls, but this didn't catch up to him until 1975. So is it a coincidence that just one year after these six female victims were killed, that he's finally locked up and they stopped? the killing stop. He was given a life sentence for the 1969 murder of Rosemary. Oh man, I'm going to butcher this last Go name. Go for it. Colin, <laughs> Colin Drello. 
Nice sure. shot. Nice, <laughs> nice shot. try, buddy. Nice. Uh, unfortunately, I, I apologize to her and her family. She was only 17 years old. She was from Atlantic Highlands, New Jersey. Um, but it's not just that simple. Because Zarensky was indicted for the 1968 murder of Jane Durer, just 13 years old. But this wasn't until 2008. Now, he ends up dying in prison before the trial could start. And then, even crazier, after his death, this didn't take place until 2016, D- DNA evidence connected him to the 1965 murder of Mara Klinsky who was 18 years old. He was also a prime suspect in four other murders of young women and teenage girls from the years 1969 to 1974. And this includes the murders of two that we discussed here, this Doreen Carlucci and, and Joanne DeLardo. These were the two that were walking together to the mall. Right. It looks to me, Captain, like if I had to pick somebody just based off of previous crimes other activity that we know they were up to and being in the area at the time. I think that he probably killed these two girls. I'm not convinced that he killed the other four. I certainly don't. I certainly don't really think that he killed Jeanette De Palma. Well, who knows? I mean, he's a, he's a serial killer, but I, right. And so he, it's not out of the realm of possibility. Right. And he certainly belongs on the suspect list, certainly for those that include a serial killer theory or an unknown serial killer theory uh, when discussing Jeanette's death. He's definitely also on the list of pieces of shit that he is, Captain. I, you know, I suspect that had Robert killed Jeanette, that there would have been signs of the cause of death. There would have been some marks some indication that she might have been tortured before being killed. And I mean, I, I know she was badly decayed, but I think it would have been an obvious homicide because Robert Zarinsky, I mean, he left the item he strangled girls with at the dump scenes and even on their bodies. Yeah. He was a real genius. Um, that's why I question the autopsy a lot because I know that she was badly decomposed, but I just go back to the fact that um, maybe this person didn't have enough experience. Maybe this person just didn't do their job that weekend, but it just seems like those are the things that were missing that could really help this case. And I think you may have hit the nail on the head there, Captain. I think... I mean, it smells a little foamy, you know? Well, but you're talking about... I think you're right that the person may not have had the right experience. Mm Mm-hmm. And the reason why that comes to mind is because the six weeks between the time that she went missing and then the body being found. I think that a lot was left uh, from there. A lot was lost uh, over that portion of time Mm -hmm. and that somebody with lesser experience didn't know what to look for or didn't know who to go to to ask the appropriate questions. And I don't have the person's name here in front of me, uh, the the acting coroner or medical examiner or whatever you want to call them at the time. What I do know is that the person was a, an appointed, uh, it was similar to the Fami Malik situation where it was somebody that was appointed, uh, the position. It wasn't a position that they applied for and sat in front of medical boards and earned the position. It was an appointed position. It was a practicing physician. Uh, the person was a doctor, uh, that, that held that position, but not a trained from what I could find, not a trained pathologist. So you, you might be onto something there. We, we could be missing the cause of death simply because this person giving the examination may not have had the proper amount of experience. Mm-hmm. Now I do want to kind of move towards a high note, uh, and maybe I should be bigger than this, but I'm, I'm not. Uh, so I'm happy to report that the the guy that we were just talking about, Robert Zarinsky, is under dirt. Like we had said, he had passed away. He's under dirt where he belongs. He died late in 2008 in prison. He had pulmonary fibrosis. This is a disease that makes it increasingly difficult to breathe. So like I said, I'm not bigger. Th- I wish I was bigger than this, but I'm not. I hope it was hell for him at the end. This is a guy that well, he's killing people by strangulation, right? Yeah. So, I mean, the universe, you know, karma sometimes is a bitch that chokes you really slowly for a long time. 
Well, and maybe fitting in a way that that was how he passed away. But uh, you know, serves we, him right. That son we of a we bitch. bring him up because he's a he's a lesser known, likely serial killer. And there is that theory of an unknown serial killer having worked the area. Maybe Jeanette's part of that series. Maybe she was not a victim in that series. Uh, one thing that I would encourage people to do is I think that Zerinsky could be a likely suspect for a victim that's named Joan Kramer. And now she's not somebody that we've discussed here. And some people have have been led to believe, or some people believe that there's a possibility that Joan Kramer's death is in fact connected to Jeanette's in some way. Right. And we've not discussed that death here, uh, but I would encourage people to check that out in the book that we keep bringing up the death on the devil's teeth. Hopefully we get a talk with Jesse tomorrow. Yes. And the thing here is though, captain, I do want to kind of wrap a few things up, you know, as we've gone through all these different theories and, and all the thoughts and rumors that were out there regarding Jeanette De Palma and what could have happened to her. You know, we've talked to, we, we spent the last half hour talking about this possible unknown serial killer idea. We talked about what happened to, to the man that I brought up, Robert Zerinsky. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we've, Dick what, knows. what we failed to mention here is some of the other, uh, theories that we've discussed. And one of those being that one of the Blattis brothers, had disposed of Jeanette's body, that something happened to her at that, at that so-called party that night. And one of the Blattis brother, brothers left her there in the woods. Right. Now I do want to clear up one thing. We kind of, we kind of put the kibosh on that because we're stating, you know, there were no drugs found in her system. Right. And second of all, so why would you dump a body that somebody OD'd? But again, if the person doesn't know how to do their job and do the autopsy right, maybe they don't know if there were drugs in their system or not. Well, I don't think he conducted those tests, and I, I don't have the information okay. right in front get, of me. I, I think, yeah, I think he sent, that was sent off. But I think it, it was in a way that, and uh, this is going to sound very crude, and I'm sorry, but it's it's what happened. Um, I, I think because of how decayed the body was that he had to remove a a piece of flesh mm-hmm. from a remaining piece of flesh from the body that was sent off for testing. Now I, I don't have, you know, I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on TV. I don't he pretend to be a doctor. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I, I do want to point this out from my limited knowledge on how this stuff works. It's my understanding that that the manner that they perform that test by cutting off a piece of the flesh and sending it off is not the preferred way that they that they would like Again, to do the, conduct right, so the, the test. Right, so the test could be inconclusive. It could be. Right. It could be wrong. But, um, but there is some speculation and rumors and and some uh, some loose evidence to prove that she left that house. Mm-hmm. So that would kind of well. There's know. a couple people that said that that's what they believe. You know that they they heard from other people. You know these are all people of the same age that go to the same school saying, hey, I heard from so-and-so that she showed up there that night, that she showed up there that evening. Now, there are a few police officers out there, and we referenced them uh, last week, stating that, uh, you know, regarding the Blattis brother theory is, well, I wouldn't work the Jeanette De Palma case because I'm 90% sure that this Blattis brother, and I'm going to refrain from using his first name, Mm-hmm. had something to do with this that left her body in the woods and he died. He's passed away and it was in the late eighties or early nineties. And so therefore what did he die of drug overdose. I, I don't know. I don't know. All I know is that he's, if he did, then there's a little more weight to that story. Though. All I know is that he's passed away and they're stating, you know, look, the guy we believe that did this or that had something to do with this is dead and gone. So there's mm-hmm. no point in, investigating that theory any further we've talked about the homeless the houseless man excuse me red uh that theory he he did you know we questioned how they cleared him uh he has passed away as well um he they found him in the woods he in another dwelling that he had put together and i believe this would have been about 12 years 12 or 15 years after the Jeanette de palma case he was still soul searching he was still doing his thing in the woods mm. there uh, in a different part of New Jersey, and he was found, and I believe it was an ax, It was ruled an accidental 
death. And the list case that we covered. Yes. What was the conclusion of that for the listeners that were probably wondering? Oh, yeah. So John List, after having killed his mother, wife, and children in 1971, um, he was on the run for 17 and a half years. Jesus. During that time, he had relocated a couple of times, moving to Michigan, then to Colorado, and on to Virginia, mm-hmm. uh, where he was apprehended and living under the alias of Robert Peter Clark, going by... <laughs> Robert Peter Clark, three first names. Yeah, I, I didn't pick up on that. He, he did go by Bob for short. No, that's, um, that's very clever. Bob Clark. Uh, during this time on the run, he had married again. Uh, he was arrested in June of 1989 in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, the and I'll give a brief a brief story of this because it's kind of it's quite lengthy actually. Um, but this is one of my favorite <laughs> kind of old true crime stories that I'm very fond of. It's a, it's a story that I read many years ago, and some of you might be familiar with this, but for those of you that are not. John List was actually apprehended in in large part to the America's Most Wanted TV show. Uh, they had presented his case at least one time, multiple times, I believe, and to the point where they they made a bust of what John John List would probably look like in 1989. Mm-hmm. Now, one of his neighbors, a person that had lived with him, yeah, I remember this episode. Yeah, somebody that had lived near him in Colorado called America's Most Wanted and said, look, I know this dude. He looks exactly like him. He's a weird guy. Uh, he's the same age, and he's going by this name. And he, Three first names. He and his wife moved to Richmond, Virginia, and they later tracked him down. Now, the crazy thing here, though, Captain, is John List, He for like it was like for like nine months, he denied being John List. And he was like, nope, I'm Robert Peter Clark. <laughs> I'm Robert Peter Clark. You have to prove that I'm not this person that I've been living as for at least 17 and a half years. What yeah, but they this di- is the crazy son of a bitch that decided I'm going to kill everybody in my family because I'm afraid they're going away they go from God. Yeah. So if I kill them now, they're going to go to God right now. Yeah. It's- pure insanity and it's what what baffles me and all these satanic panic cases mm-hmm. is those are uh, there's a lot that we have talked about are that are popular cases like the west memphis three for example mm-hmm. don't you think these like very religious uh people killing their whole family cases should be a little bit more popular to warn people right right i mean but, but often what we see in these situations is we have somebody that's probably, especially with John List, let's use just use him as the prime example. Mm-hmm. But in this example, we see somebody that is a complete psychopath, and he's then going to use religion, God's name, and heaven as some kind of excuse or, right, right, or right. some reasoning behind something that the rest of us do not want to have to comprehend. Right, because it was a piece of shit, and he wasn't a believer in God anyways. you know. And look, I'm all for religious rights and spiritual beliefs you know, in a healthy manner, though. Hmm. Well, to, to kind of wrap this up, though, the way that they... And remember, he was going to stick to his guns and, and say that he was Robert Peter Clark. And the way that they did identify him... <sighs> Robert Peter Clark trio. Yeah, it's the one-man band. Yeah. Uh, they they found his old from his old military records mm-hmm. when he was a young man they fingerprint you when you go into the military well they compared those fi- fingerprints for with his his fingerprints and they matched them up so ah, you can't gotcha got him can't get out of that so uh, he was positively identified as John List remember he left that letter to his pastor that kind of was a confession. Remember, he said exactly what yeah. he did. But like you were saying, it's it's less of a confession and more of um, an excuse. A excuse. Yeah. And, and, and putting some uh, backing up his reasoning or what he did. But I, I only bring that up because at trial, they used that letter against him as a confession. Good. And then his his attorneys pointed out that they couldn't use it because that was something that he left f- addressed to his pastor and they have that relationship. You know, they have the confidence between the two of them 
can't be brought up in in court. Don't worry, they they had no problem um, convicting him. And unfortunately, he was given the the um, the uh, worst penalty he could face at the time was five life sentences. So they uh, couldn't they couldn't give him the death penalty. They couldn't give him anything more than five life sentences. But uh, uh, that's what they did in the John List case. John List still went by Robert Peter Clark. I hope they all three got what they deserved in prison. All right, until next time, be good, be kind, and don't litter. You ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today.